if we could just somehow capture the essence of that song, making application in our lives, we would all be so much better off. But it's an important reminder that Jesus doesn't change, but we do sometimes. In fact, although Jesus is the same yesterday and today, forever, we lose sight of that holiness. We lose our grip on His goodness. We get distracted by the culture and the necessary painful things happening in our culture need to grab our attention. But it can never take us away from that picture painted in Revelation and in Isaiah's prophecy of the holiness of our God. I wonder where the trembling has gone even amongst His people. I wonder where that overwhelming sense of sinfulness has gone even amongst His people. Not recognizing that we're sinful people with unclean lives and and mouths that do not deserve at all to be in the presence of our King. But aren't you thankful this morning that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you can enter into the presence of your King? You can have a relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords and the God of all creation and have that blessed hope and assurance that someday we will stand around the throne, perhaps not sing this song, but to sing the song of the angels, holy, holy, holy. But what do we do now? What do we do until that time becomes a reality? How do we grapple and wrestle with the things that are happening in our culture and the breakdown in so many different ways and in so many different areas in our lives? I find it interesting generationally that the younger the generation, the less shocked and surprised they are in some of these paradigm changes in our culture. I've also found that the older you are by way of generation the more you realize how drastically your world has changed. In the last 10 years, and I believe even in the last two years, just seismically different than what it once was. As we launch into a new year and begin by providing a state of the church address, we'll finish our study in Second Peter And it's an alarming study from where we find ourselves in, because it begins to talk about the coming judgment, begins to lay out the reality that for those who reject Christ and the things of Christ, there is an eternal condemnation that must be wrestled with. And I believe that God's church must wrestle with that eternal condemnation as well. I think we've lost sight of the fact that the people around us are desperately lost and headed toward an eternity separated from God. And that ought to create an urgency in all of us. And even if you don't have that urgency from the standpoint of the culture, I pray that you have it for your children and your children's children. 
because I believe that time is short. And I believe that the changes that we're experiencing have really serious ramifications for the body gathering. What I once thought was sometime in the future, but I pray it's not closer than I've imagined, but I fear that it might, that it might be. So we're going to do what we've done over the last two years in the midst of this pandemic of change. I really think at the end of the day that's what this was, a pandemic of change. Don't discount lives that were lost. I don't discount the reality of COVID-19. Maybe I'm a cynic, but I think that some have seized on this opportunity to change the world before our very eyes, and it's deeply alarming to me. And I see the changes taking place even in the context of evangelicalism. If I were to title my sermon this morning, it would be getting back to the truth of the Word of God and all of its absolute authority. As we deal with the state of the church, turn your attention, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice that was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with Him on that holy mountain. If you just pause with me for a second, Peter is giving testimony of what we find recorded in the Gospels of that Mount of Transfiguration. They had been serving and following the Savior in the valleys and on the mountaintop. It had been a tumultuous ride. They had seen so much from their Savior. But on this special occasion, Peter, James, and John were gathered up on a mountain with Jesus And he unveiled his glory, at least a part or partial glory to these men. And you can imagine how overwhelmed they were. Can you imagine seeing the glory of our King? It reminds me of Isaiah 6. It reminds me of the song that we sang in Revelation 4 and 5 when we are overwhelmed with the glory of our King. Experiences are important passionate emotions are important. But Peter is making a distinct point here that that wasn't the most important thing. That wasn't what would sustain them in the days ahead. We found it very interesting that indeed it didn't sustain Peter in his doubting and his denials. Perhaps that's why he writes in this text the way he does. So, he transitions from that glorious recollection of the transfiguration and the glory of God shining on His Savior to the very people that He was dealing with in a time of heresy and false doctrine and false teachers, and says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place 
until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. What a critical component to Peter's message as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We're not going to take the time again this morning to exposit this passage of Scripture. We've done this numerous times and most recently in several messages on this text in our study on Second Peter. You'll find those recordings on our website and other places if you'd like to go back and remind yourself. Perhaps today we deal with the application of this truth in a deeply alarming yet perhaps an empowering and affirming kind of way. As we begin this morning, I reflect back on the lost years of 2020 and 2021. And I know they weren't lost years, but I sense that we all age a little bit more than the two years that this has gripped us as a nation. And as I reflect upon the culture, there has been seismic cultural changes that ought to be deeply alarming. We ought to be alarmed at the rabid and radical individualism that is running rampant in our country today and the crushing blow that that has yielded to personal responsibility. I don't know about you, I'm a little ticked off. How in the world is it when a police officer is involved in a shooting, God forbid, He's a vile and terrible human being, and yet when someone shoots a police officer, it's applauded by certain in our culture. That is evil. That is our culture. That's where we find ourselves after this radical left turn that jettisoned any sense or common sense that lacks any reason or rationale and has no room for dialogue and debate. Yet at the same time, it seems like everyone is still looking for a Savior. Did you ever notice that? Everyone's still looking for a Savior. They may be looking in different places, but everyone is looking for something to save them. Do you know that we're the ones who have that truth? We're the ones that have that answer. We're the ones accountable to communicating that truth to this world, looking for a Savior, seeking redemption, restoration. We live in a culture that has rejected God. And some of you think, no, we still live in very deeply religious and spiritual times. Well, let me clarify clarify my, my statement. We live in a culture that has rejected God, and you reject God when you redefine Him. You reject God when you take Him off His throne. You reject God when you minimize His holiness. And you reject God when you paint a picture of God after your own personal whims and this radical individualism that I'm speaking of. God is God. We have no authority to redefine Him in cultural contemporary terms. We have simply rejected Him. I started my annual report in writing 
by saying, just when you think we're finally returning to normal, you realize the normal that this life today is radically different than the normal of a mere two or three years ago. COVID is still here. At least it's still impacting everyday life. And the elites have claimed our children is theirs to shape and program. And the moral landscape has been reimagined before our very eyes. And division and disorder seem to be the preferred path in this transformation of our culture. Some of us are surprised. Some of us are are shocked. Some of us have turned our individual and corporate responsibility as a body of believers over to others to do our bidding, whether by legislation or other means. But let's be perfectly clear, we're in a battle this morning, and it's a battle between light and darkness. It's a battle between good and evil. We need to remind ourselves in the midst of this battle the words of the Gospel of John, and this is the final judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. We will get back to that later in our message. This is a critical passage to understand our culture. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Even in the dark age in which we live, there is light, and Jesus is that light of the world. Nothing has changed there, save for perhaps modern-day evangelicalism putting that light under a bushel. denying the particular doctrines and theology so critical in understanding Jesus as that light. But even amongst those who claim that light, I have a grave concern at the decline and the decay of the Western church. Even in modern evangelicalism today, some of the things that were held historically in orthodox faith have been jettisoned or redefined in some way, that it doesn't even resemble the faith delivered once for all to the saints. It more resembles this radical individualism that happens in the world. It is a faith, then, that we've designed according to our whims, according to our lifestyles, and according to what we perceive to be our needs. No doubt there are some who may accuse me of using a declension narrative. A declension narrative is, is a story that's told of a, of a simpler time. A declension narrative says there was at one point in time a golden age, but we don't live in that golden age anymore. And you can imagine the left and the progressives, how they respond to a declension narrative how to respond to those who say, this isn't the way it should be. This is not our country anymore. That is this declension narrative. But unfortunately, in this same narrative, it says that we live in a time of decay and decline, and no one can deny that. But this declension narrative says that the process of decline can at best be slowed down. It can never be 
stopped. And the only thing that we can hope for is to hold on to the past before it slips out of our grasp. The problem with a declension narrative is it gets the facts right. This is not the same world. It is not the same morality. It's not the same family. It is not the same church. Yet to embrace a declension narrative would bring about scorn and rebuke by many on the left today that says we're just old-fashioned and clinging to our Bibles and our guns, if you remember that phraseology. But it's also a trap for evangelical Christianity and those who have come to the light, because if you truly believe there's a light, you never lose hope. You never believe that there's nothing I can do about this. You never give up and walk away. Indeed, we live in challenging times, but we live in times of great blessing as well. In terms of medical advances and the age that people live, the treatments available today. This is still our Father's world, and there is much to be thankful for. But we must recognize decay and decline. But we can't give up the hope that there is an answer and a better way, and that the truth can set you free. This declension narrative is real in many ways. Our whole understanding of morality has changed. The whole understanding of personal responsibility has been jettisoned and is almost non-existent in our culture today. In the church today, this notion of the absolute authority and infallibility of Scripture has been called into question and to doubt through textual criticism and different philosophies, we begin to embrace this notion that you can't take the Bible literally. How in the world can you be so foolish to believe that a man built a boat that spared him from a flood that encompassed the earth? That's childish. That's, that's ridiculous. That's anti-intellectual. I'm here to tell you that's true. That's true. There is a story of apostasy to be told, a story of denominationalism's decline, a story of Christian colleges and universities leaving their first love, the Word, and the communication of truth to the next generation, to all kinds of atrocities. But are you surprised? A simple look through history and church history as we know it would reveal that from the beginning of the church there was errant doctrine that had to be addressed by councils and creeds. It had to be addressed by studious men who studied the Scriptures and called out the errant doctrines. In fact, Peter speaks of those errant doctrines and false teachers in Second Peter. We think this is only our issue. It has always been an issue. The difference today in the church is that when challenged with some of these errant doctrines, 
unless there is an absolute commitment to the high view of God and the absolute authority of His Word, we have no answers for those errant doctrines. And I have grave concern that even in the context of conservative churches, we've embraced some progressive kind of gospel that talks about meeting people's needs without addressing people's sin. And the greatest need of all mankind is that they are depraved, tainted by original sin, and without Christ. And judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. What's happened both in and out of the church is the creation of a culture that is a high-demand culture with a low-commitment mindset. We want what we want. We'll tell you what we want. We won't accept anything less than what we want. We don't offer anything in return. It is very difficult to deal with a culture like that. It is even more difficult to deal with churches like that. And it challenges us in some way to rethink our ministry because in Second Peter chapter 2, we are reminded that judgment is coming. It plays out, John chapter 3, and the condemnation to those who love darkness rather than light. And we must understand that in the context, it is not the cultural changes that rock us to our core. It is not even death, for there is always something worse than death, and that is the judgment. The older I get, the more real that becomes to me. There are people who think they're okay that will spend eternity separate from this God of all creation. There are people today who shake their fist at this God and believe that they've won. Our God will have the final say, but it's a say in judgment. And that eternal judgment is far worse than physical death. In fact, Second Peter 3 reminds us, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Does it make you shudder? Perhaps we need again to be reminded of C.S. Lewis and his famous statement, you have never met a mere mortal. Every person you interact with, from the most progressive, godless, hopeless person, to those involved in the church, and they're not always different people. Everyone will be accountable for eternity, every last one of them. That that demands a response from the church. It demands a response from the faithful. It demands that we stand up and be counted. I'm reading a biography of R.C. Sproul, one of my heroes of faith, one of my mentors, in fact, who has had a significant impact in how I understand life and godliness and, and holiness. He was a man of the Reformation who had a great affinity to Martin Luther, 
and his life of taking a stance in a generation in which that stance was absolutely necessary. And he reminds us in this biography that we are say, that Martin Luther and some don't necessarily attribute this quote verbatim to him, but it is what he taught for sure. We are saved by faith alone, amen and amen, but the faith that saves is never alone. What does that mean? Saving faith changes everything. Not just your eternal destiny, saving faith must change how you live. And that is First Peter. Let me remind you of where we've been in First Peter. As he introduces us to trials and testing, as he asks us to fix our eyes on the horizon and what comes next. And First Peter chapter 1, where he tells believers that they have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why the declension narrative isn't the total sum of our story. We see the decline and the decay, but we cling to hope. And why? Because Jesus is alive. I don't know about your Savior. Mine is not on a cross any longer. Seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, making intercession for the saints. Peter said, when you go through these fiery trials, you have a hope that is a living hope because our Savior is alive. He says in that same chapter, there may be a time for a little while that you will be grieved by various trials, sometimes personal, sometimes familial, sometimes cultural. Sometimes doctrinal, and sometimes the quietness, lonely night, doubt and despair. We like to tell Christians you should never doubt and despair, but you haven't read the Psalms. You don't grasp and understand the reality that we are still not home yet, and we are prone to things that thank God He will take away when we see Him and become like Him. We doubt. We get discouraged and we despair and we wring our hands. The faith that has saved us is a faith that will keep us, is a faith that will sustain us and teach us how to live soberly and righteous in this present age. And how are we to live? He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, the God who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in everything. There is a, a call, a clarion call to holiness that is lost on current evangelicalism. He calls us to total submission, and He gives specifics in life under the sun, but make no mistake, the number one submission required of all believers today is submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And you say, there He goes again. Listen, we've had this talk. I'm tired of talking about it. If your Savior isn't Lord, you're worshiping a false Christ. My Savior is King of kings and Lord of lords, holy in every aspect of His being, glorious, benevolent, and kind, and coming again, coming again. That, that's my Savior. We've been called to submit to Him then, even in our call to suffering. Our call to suffering is real. Our call to suffering at times rocks us to our very core. And in the midst of that suffering, Peter says in chapter 3 of his first epistle, so in your hearts, in the midst of your suffering, honor Christ the Lord is holy. 
chapter 3, verse 15, and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, and do it with gentleness and respect. Chapter 5, Peter calls for godly leadership, motivated by all of the right things for the glory of God. He wraps up his epistle in chapter 5 by a offering a call to discernment. Be sober-minded and watchful. I wonder sometimes, even in the church, if we become much like the Roman Empire in its decline. It is happening before our very eyes, and we don't even notice it. We're just doing our own thing. I do not believe that the greatest threat to the church comes from without, not through politics or anything else. The greatest threat to the church comes from within when we lose our way. So what does Peter do in 2 Peter chapter 1? After warning of the false teachers and the errant doctrines, he calls us back to a return to the Word. He calls us back to the section of Scripture that we read this morning. We have something more sure the Word of God. We must be people of the book. We must embrace it in all its reality. We must live it out to the best of our ability, knowing that we're not home yet, but trusting the living hope that we have in the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the things that is spoken of much in our culture today is the increase in what has often been called the nuns of the culture, those who have no religion or theological or denominational connections whatsoever. They have rejected the church and the teachings of the church, and it doesn't mean they're not spiritual, but they've rejected all of that. And where that begins, and I'm sad to say it's the story of so many, even in the church today, where that begins is by rejecting the absolute authority and infallibility of Scripture and embracing a new revelation being peddled by the false teachers that deconstruct the text and say it really doesn't mean what it says, it means this. And when young people experience that casting of doubt on their understanding of the Word and what they've been taught through their formidable years of development, when they begin to embrace this new revelation, they fall prey to the trap in Genesis chapter 3 where Satan himself says to Adam and Eve, has God really said that? As soon as those doubts about Scripture and its infallibility, and in its errancy, and its absolute truth comes, they become detached from the truth once delivered from the saints, according to Jude, and they start drifting through life, reinterpreting the Word, reimagining the God of the Word, and expressing their radical individualism that takes them closer and closer to the reality of agnosticism and begins to plague their hearts and minds with skepticism. It often happens in higher education today. In fact, I sense that in some ways in higher education, that's why it exists, to undermine a simple faith once delivered for the saints. But once our young people start drifting towards agnosticism 
and skepticism, not believing everything in the Scripture, but trying to hold to other things in the Scripture, they are on the horns of a dilemma. And the dilemma is this, either I trust God or I trust myself, and Romans 1 comes into play here. So they reject God because it doesn't fit their lifestyle. He doesn't fit their thinking. He doesn't fit what they think ought to be so. And they erect this idol in their lives, and the greatest idol in most people's lives is the idol of self, exchanging the glory of God to, to, to the glory of people. And soon this agnosticism and skepticism that, that is running awash over them slams them against the reality of atheism. They walk away from everything. First Timothy chapter 1, Timothy says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith with a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hermanius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Some of our young people raised in this place and taught the faith once delivered for their saints have made a shipwreck of their faith, and it begins with undermining the absolute truth and authority of the Word of God. Timothy says later on in that text that some can be restored. Foolishly, we hang on to this notion that all will be restored because you train up a child in the way they should go, and they never walk away from that. That's not what that text means. When our young people lose all sense of the high value and understanding of, of, of Scripture, and they reject that Scripture shipwreck is almost inevitable in their lives. So Peter is writing in his second epistle about these false teachers and these errant doctrines, and he offers a clarion call back to the book, the Word of God. If you find yourself in ministry today and if you read about some of the challenges and attacks upon evangelical Christianity… It's easy to get discouraged. It's, it's easy to, to wonder if it's even worth it anymore. Is anybody listening? Does anyone even believe this is true? Well, you're looking at someone who believes it's all true. Sorry. And that's not an apology. I just don't mean to make you uncomfortable. Maybe I do mean to make you uncomfortable. Maybe I do. You don't get to pick and choose what's true and what's not true. For a rejection of the authority of Scripture is the very rejection of Christ and of the God of the Bible. Don't go down that slippery slope. Be thankful for the men of God through the years who Sproul calls battlefield theologians who know they're in a spiritual war and immobilize the troops for a battle. I sense that sometimes that's my job. Cheer on the troops. When they get weary, focus on the truth. Don't ever compromise that truth, but it can be discouraging. The great R.C. Sproul himself said, when I get discouraged, and I do, you don't know how comforting that is to the little guys like me. 
He was a giant of the faith. He was a battlefield theologian. You come Wednesdays and, and Sunday mornings, we're going to teach you about those, those battlefield theologians. He said, when I get discouraged, and I do, I tell myself, it's not my job to convict, it's my job to preach the Word and trust that God will honor His Word. I believe that with all my heart. I still sometimes go back to taking responsibility for you, but, but I can't. I must be deeply responsible for the things that I bring you, and therefore we say, take your Bibles and turn to, please. In the flesh, I have nothing for you. But in my calling, I have everything for you, and it must come through the book. It must come when men learn to preach what is in the Bible, not what they wish was in the Bible. When the Bible talks about shipwreck, when the Bible talks about conscience, when John, after the most well-known verse in the New Testament, for God so loved the world, says, there are some for conscience sake who choose darkness rather than light. In other words, the light makes them uncomfortable for it exposes the choices that they make in their life. When it exposes us, our tendency is to soften the blow fall into this trap of itching ears and telling people what they want to hear, but that's a low view of God that leads to a low view of the Scripture, and we must get back to preaching the truth, even when that's unpopular, even when you're telling people what they do not want to hear, total depravity, original sin, and coming judgment. Again, Martin Luther was one to say, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. I believe that. I believe that. So what is needed in the church? What is needed in my life and, and in your life? Someone call us to a, to a new reformation of sorts. Someone call us to this place of engaging in this ecclesiastical battle for truth, and I do believe there's a place for that. But rather, Another reformation, I believe that what's needed and necessary in our lives and in our churches is biblical repentance, which begins by, by confessing that we no longer hold a high view of God. We no longer hold a high view of the Scripture. We no longer do the things that we know to be true and cling to the faith once delivered for the saints. There will be times and seasons where we all set that aside. Some of you more spiritual think you don't, and when you think that, you have done the very thing that you say you don't do. Boy, we're all feeble and frail in so many ways. We must confess that we've set it aside. We must confess that we've taken it personal. We must confess our discouragement, and we must get back to that truth. And getting back to that truth demands repentance, not just saying, man, we missed the mark and we need to do a better job here, but doing something different than what we are doing to get back to the place of truth. Repentance is to stop doing this and start doing this. And when we start telling stories and when we start spinning tales and when the gospel becomes about you and social causes and no longer about Christ and His amazing sacrifice for the sins of all mankind, there must be confession and repentance. 
and realignment. And what is realignment? It's not what people think it is. It's getting back to the future. It's going back to some of those battles that were fought and won and holding truth to be truth. And it is only then that the church is restored and only then when Christ's power and the power of the Word return to the church. Some have bought into this crazy left turn. I call upon you to repent. Sometimes in our programming, we lost our first love, and it's no longer about the book and discipleship, but fun and felt needs to call you to confess and repent. And as a church as a whole, for me at the helm, there are times that I must biblically repent because you can tell the truth and still have a lingering doubt, just like R.C. Sproul sometimes, that doubt and discouragement come into my life. Confess, repent, realign, and restore. And I'd be remiss as we conclude by leaving out the absolute importance of the family. If you've been paying attention, the political voices and extremists of our culture today, those that educate your children think that your children are words of the state. That is godless. You as mom and dad are responsible for those children. And your confession and repentance and, and restoration to the things that are true are needful and necessary to capture the hearts and minds of your children. Renegade school boards that say, I don't work for you and your children are none of your business are evil boards. And not all school boards are evil. We like to paint this dichotomy that you're one or the other. Some are very good people trying to do the right thing, but whenever they think that our children are theirs, we're in trouble. You're in trouble, and your children are in trouble. It's the parent's job in the family to give leadership and nurturance and, and teaching to their children. Whether we're targeted or not, we must hold on to that authority and power and grave responsibility given us to, in, in Scripture to teach and, and to raise up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It's not done through a program, and it's not even done by going to church. It's shaped in the home by moms and dads who are committed to the truth and a high view of God. And all of us need to get back there. For we're warned by Rod Dreher, his New York Times bestseller, The Benedict Option, that when both the family and the community become fragmented and fail, the transmission of religion to the next generation becomes far more difficult. And all it takes is the failure of a single generation to hand down a tradition, and for that tradition to disappear from the life of the family and in turn the life of a community. We are on the precipice of that taking place before our very eyes. We must guard our children with our very lives. I'm thankful to have Pastor Andrew and Mr. Matt here who are leading the charge and the restoration of the family. And I can't help but think that perhaps we're coming to a place in time where our small group ministry is going to be one of the most important ministries of our church. 
I tried to prepare you seven years ago when I first introduced the concept that my job was to teach you in preparation for the time that the church couldn't gather without, without compromise or without consequence in the culture. And I thought I was talking about things way down in the future, and in this last couple of years I realized I'm talking about things that are at our doorstep today. Canadian Law C-4 passed in 2021, says that a Christian has no right to their biblical worldview of male and female, husband and wife, and the family. And in Canada, it is now a crime to try and challenge and change someone's gender identity. It is a, it is a crime to challenge the sex assignment at birth Acknowledging that male and female are the only two options. It's a crime to try and repress or reduce or counsel someone with a same-sex relationship, draw, or behavior. It is a crime to teach the Scripture. There are pastors in Canada today that are in jail for this very same thing. For 45 years, West Church and West Lafayette, or Faith Church and West Lafayette, Indiana, I have a friend on staff there, has operated a biblical counseling ministry for the community. And the city council in West Lafayette, Indiana, is adopting the very same law that exists in Canada that now makes that community outreach and biblical counseling illegal. You think it never will happen here. It is already happening in front of us. This new soft despotism is coming for us. And there's a growing unrest to our mere existence, let alone our beliefs. They're way past our beliefs. They don't even like us that we're on the face of the earth anymore. And you say, oh, come on, that's that's hyperbole. Did you just not hear what I said? They want to get rid of us. They want to get rid of a biblical worldview. They want to get rid of the God of the Bible. And we've been given the trust to maintain the God of the Bible in a godless age. Throughout church history, God has called men to take a stand. In our generation, men like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul have, have filled that role, among others. They led the way, but they weren't alone. In fact, they spoke, and at the local grassroots, local church level, churches large and very small, faithful men were drawn back to the authority of the Word. Their congregations were committed to a high view of God and the Word, and they have made a difference in small ways and in big ways. And that is what is called for today. I told you in the end of 2020, without knowing what 2021 would bring, and I'm more convinced I was right back one whole year ago, there's no, nowhere to hide. You must take your stand in the family, in the church, and in the culture. Where will First Baptist find itself in the days and months and the years that lie ahead? It is my firm resolve, not sure I always have the strength, understand my own frailty, 
But it's my firm resolve that as long as I'm here, we're going to be people of the book. And I wonder how many of you will be here someday down the road in the future when there's a consequence for being people of the book. And I'm not casting doubt on you. I'm embracing the doubt in my own heart in life. So, so far, we've kind of skidded along. Somebody says something bad on Facebook. Oh, I'm persecuted. Oh, you just wait. Are we ready for this fight? Parents, will you take your stand in your home? Know that a declaration for truth is a two-edged sword. And to stand on truth will result in consequence. And rather than weigh the consequences, why don't we weigh the truth? And if we weigh the truth to be absolute, regardless of the consequences, Martin Luther said, here I stand. I won't recant. I won't renounce here I stand. The world is in trouble. The church is in trouble. God has blessed us with a faithful remnant at First Baptist. There are pockets even here who think perhaps our, our sexual moral stance is a little too narrow. We need to broaden it to be more inclusive. I have no right or authority to broaden the Scripture. I am not God, and I cannot be God. And when he says he created male and female, I still believe, as old-fashioned as that is, that that's all there is. We must call people back to that truth for the glory of God. With gentleness and respect, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 3. So what are we to do? Do not lose heart. 1 Peter chapter 2. To a beleaguered group of Christians facing persecution, Peter writes, but you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Listen to this, for once you were not a people. Do you get that? Do you get how blessed you are to be children of the King? You were them, that them out there. That was you. You were once in that place, but you were rescued, and you are now God's people. Once you had not received mercy, you were children of the darkness, but now you have received mercy, you are children of light. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, this is not your home, Peter says. This isn't as good as it gets. There's a better day coming. This is not your home. And while you're here, abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The very exercise in studying 1 Peter and 2 Peter is to prepare us for a day such as this. And God is in, in His providence has allowed us to touch on a lot of issues over this last year and a half that we've studied these texts that are so, so relevant for the world in which we live today. Where will we stand? And by the way, everybody stands somewhere. This isn't a decision that you can choose not to make. Everybody stands 
somewhere. We must stand upon the glory of our God, the miraculous rescue of our Savior, the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and this more sure word of prophecy that will sustain us in the worst of times until we hear the sound of a trumpet. You think the God who has chosen you will lose a single one of you? God forbid. Everything's going to be okay. Where do you stand? Father, I thank you. for the ability and the capacity to look at the world and to address these issues and to take a stand. We pray for grace and mercy in the midst of a courageous stand to communicate the truth, even when people don't want that truth. pray that we never bend Your Word to our particular whims, but always understand the brokenness of man and the glory of our King it changes everything. May the gospel continue in this place. We unashamedly cling to the truth of Your Word. May you once again give us a glimpse of your glory that sustains us in the darkest day of life. And may you receive all the praise and the honor and the glory as our great God and King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.